I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. As tensions rise over Ukraine, Russia's ambassador to Ireland, Yuri Filatov, has said that the controversy about the Russian military exercise that's due to take place in waters off the Irish coast next month is hugely overblown. This is not in any way a threat to Ireland or anybody else. No harm is intended and no problem is expected. Politico Suzanne Lynch will bring us the very latest developments on Ukraine. Should Ireland's pandemic response be subject to a public inquiry? Sinn Féin's David Cullinan and Fine Gael's Neil Richmond debate. Time to begin moving on with the pandemic. In retreat, ESRI behavioural economist Pete Lunn will be here. And later, are you fed up of rising energy costs? Stay with us for Paul Merriman's tips to save. As always, your views are important to us. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. evening, US President Joe Biden has held a video call with his European allies to discuss the current situation in Ukraine. Over 100,000 Russian troops have gathered along the country's border, leading to fears that Moscow is planning an invasion. Well, political journalist Suzanne Lynch joins us now from Brussels for the very latest. Suzanne, you're very welcome along to the programme. Uh, first two developments tonight and that video call um, from Joe Biden to EU leaders all this off the back of the EU foreign minister's meeting today, which also featured the US Secretary of State. And really, you know, a lot of bridging um, on, with regard to the European response to what's happening on the Ukrainian border. Yeah, I think the message was was trying to be today from Brussels of a united front. Uh, there has been a lot of observations that um, the EU in particular has not been at the table for a lot of the serious discussions uh, over the last few weeks uh, on the Russia issue. It's been very much a conversation between uh, Russia and Washington. Um, and over the last week or so, we've seen some divisions, uh, both within the EU and within NATO, about how best to respond. So I think the fact that the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, um, beamed, zoomed in to this foreign minister's meeting today in Brussels, significant. And then, as you just said, we're waiting to hear the readout from that meeting that's happening this evening in the Situation Room between Joe Biden, the head of the European Commission and Council, and uh, some of the leaders around Europe, the German and French leader, Italian and British too. Um, so a lot of diplomacy, a, a lot of talk, uh, and a lot of planning uh, underway at the moment uh, between Europe and the US on, on how to best respond to this threat as they see it from Russia. Has there been much made of the Russian naval drills that are planned um, off our coast next month that have caused controversy here? Simon Coveney certainly brought it up in, in Brussels today. Um, was there much traction around it? 
Yeah, it did, it did get um, a lot of pickup here. Uh, Simon Coven, he spoke on his way into that meeting uh, this morning. We just finished a few hours ago, and he did brief his EU counterparts on this issue. Um, yes, it's been picked up here, but the problem, of course, is uh, there's very little uh, they can do about Russia's activities. They're illegally allowed to do so. But I think there's no doubt or there are suspicions here by many countries that this act is provocative. Uh, the question, the timing of this at a time of heightened tensions between Russia and the West and uh, the location. I mean, Ireland is, is, is in a pretty unique situation. It's on the westernmost point of, of Europe, if you like. Um, it is a member of the EU, but not a member of NATO. It's one of six EU countries that are not NATO members. Uh, so, you know, would Russia do this beside a NATO member, for example? So, yeah, I think it's seen as another kind of ratcheting up of tensions by Russia at this uh, very tense moment. So what next? We do sense we're at a critical juncture here. How important will these potential sanctions be um, that, that Europe is considering tonight in terms of where, where the situation is going? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. The, Europe, the European Union has limited capabilities when it comes to defence. A country like Ireland knows that. You know, the, um, the idea of defence and military capability, that's more something for NATO. But where the EU does have power is economic power uh, and economic heft. So um, we are being told that a sanctions list is being drawn up. Um, closely in cooperation with the US uh, by EU officials here. It's a closely guarded secret. Um, they don't want to show their hand, as they see it, obviously, to Russia about what, what those sanctions uh, may look like. Um, but, you know, the energy uh, interdependency between Russia and Europe is big. So is the economic relationship. So Europe would have a lot more leverage economically than, say, America would. But again, there are divisions between member states. Germany, for example, has been criticised by a lot of the Eastern uh, European countries for not being tough enough uh, towards Moscow. This goes back to the to the Merkel era. Angela Merkel was sometimes criticised uh, for being too uh, ambivalent uh, towards Russia. Germany has got huge dependence on Russian gas and it's controversially um, almost finished a pipeline between Russia and Germany. So I think the position of the big countries here, Germany, France, and then those Eastern member states like Estonia, Poland, Lithuania, they're also all very, very anxious at the moment they're closest to the Ukrainian border and to Russia, um, and they want a more robust response from Europe. Okay, Suzanne Lynch of Politico, thank you for joining us from Brussels on the very latest about what's happening there. Well, joining me here in studio is political correspondent with the journal.ie, Christina Finn. Sinn Féin TD, David Cullinan, and Fine Gael TD, Neil Richmond. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, firstly, I just want to get your response, Neil Richmond, to what we heard there from the Russian <coughs> ambassador, Yuri Filatov, um, you know, essentially saying no harm done. This is harmless. There's nothing in this. It's been totally overblown. Um, what would you say to that? Well, I think if we look at the timing of the exercises, we look at the context, the, G the global context, there is harm done. I think they're needless and I don't see the benefit in terms of looking to get a resolution of what is extremely worrying situation on the eastern flank of the European Union. Such exercises may happen at other times, as Suzanne said, they're not illegal, it's not in Irish territorial waters, it's in our economic zone of influence. But I think 
common sense and any iota of good faith would say that these are inappropriate and are not, shouldn't be happening at this time. So in usual times you wouldn't raise any questions about such drills taking place off our coast? Well they have happened before, before and again they're off our coast but they're not in our territorial waters and there's usually engagement between all sovereign countries in this sort of regard. You do uh, raise questions, you raise concerns particularly with a country like Russia to be quite frank. However at this particular time it's extremely worrying and I very much hope they are cancelled in due course and I fully agree with the uh, statements by Minister Coveney asking them to be deferred. And if they're not cancelled? Well, I think that feeds into what is a much wider problem, as Suzanne said, for other member states, particularly those who share a frontier or are much closer to the Russian sphere of influence. There's some seriously worrying things going on. Let's not forget that only a number of years ago, Russia effectively invaded Ukraine with their little green men. They've affected Georgia. And across the EU, we see non-state actors supported by the Russian government, allowing for cyber hacking and supporting a very dangerous Belarusian regime. All right, um, but Europe is essentially divided on this. And from a Sinn Féin point of view, would you be more of the, 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 the sort of ambivalence in Germany around it? Um, there are questions being asked about how Europe should respond to this. How should Europe respond, do you think, David Conan? I think we should respond very, very strongly. Obviously, we have to defend the territorial integrity of Ukraine. We have to condemn in the strongest possible terms the escalation of matters by Russia the building up of, of troops obviously on the Ukrainian border, the potential for conflict which obviously has to be avoided. I don't believe arming the Ukrainians is going to be the solution either. I think we have to have a political solution and political interventions, so more talk and dialogue is needed. But there has to be a very strong message coming from this state, from the island of Ireland and from the European Union that this escalation of matters by Russia is wrong. And I would agree with Neil as well in relation to the timing of the military exercises off the coast of Ireland. It does feed into this wider escalation of matters by the Ukraine. Okay, so when we hear Micheál Martin saying you'll never criticise um, Russia and there's been, you know, silence over, over the troops move from Sinn Féin, you're saying, no, you're not being silent on this. I don't know where that came from, from Micheál Martin. It was a source of amusement uh, at the time, but obviously these are very serious matters and I, I just want to stick to the issue, which is this is a very serious issue. I don't stand with Putin. I stand against him. I don't agree with what he has done in Russia. I don't stand with his political philosophy and what he believes in. And in relation to what's happening in the Ukraine, they are an independent nation. They have internationally recognised borders. Those borders have to be defended. And Ireland, as a neutral country, always has a role to play to speak out speak up for uh, countries and small nations and make sure that what we get is a de-escalation of what's happening uh, on the Ukraine border rather than an escalation. So I think a very strong, united message actually should come from politicians in the, in the Dáil rather than Michal Martin European playing Parliament politics. Well, and of course, important. absolutely, and the European Parliament. And I think there's, there's a role for must be, You have to admit that there are times that Sinn Féin's MEPs in the past and indeed your current MEP haven't voted with the consensus when it comes to Russia. They haven't necessarily supported sanctions or written declarations. Other MEPs in your group, who aren't in your party, I accept, have been saying complete opposite things. So I think we need to see an element of consistency here. We haven't been here. saying complete opposite things. And I, I think said other MEPs in your group, but, but I didn't say your sec. party. But we have, you have, but you your see, MEPs what, have voted against sanctions. What, what we have is a very dangerous situation Russia. in the Ukraine. And it's amazing that at a time when we have an international crisis, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil want to make it about Sinn Féin. This isn't about Sinn Féin. But our David, when we have an international crisis, Sinn, Sinn Féin respect, MEPs didn't with vote with respect, against Russia. Our track record and standing up for small nations is second to none. And by the way, just because Neil raised it, 
I believe sanctions should be on the table and sanctions should be an option. So I speak so for Sinn Féin, not the same page government on this one? I think that there, there needs to be a consensus and there needs to be a very united message coming from, from politicians, broad, yes. Broad consensus on this one. Um, what, what do you think is the sort of, you know, the the wider context of this, of where Ireland stands with, with these naval drills taking place off our coast. And, uh, you know, I suppose Simon Coveney bring it to the attention of Europe, but mm -hmm. how far will it go beyond that? The Russian ambassador coming out tonight saying, look, nothing to worry about, lads. Well, as we said there, there's very little that Ireland can actually do in circumstances like this. It's 240 kilometres off the Irish coast. It's Yes, it's in different um, waters than perhaps we look after, but there's little, very little that Simon Coveney can do other than brief his counterparts as to this is happening. I think it's interesting that since the story broke uh, last week by the journal that it was relatively silent over the weekend. Maybe there was talks underway about, you know, moving them on or, or delaying those missiles tests. These tests have happened before. Um, Simon Coveney does seem to be pretty strong in his, um, in his words to the ambassador that he does not want them to go ahead. But I, I think they probably will. OK, um, I want to talk now about um, what's happening here at home with regard to um, the pandemic. We had the easing of all those restrictions ahead of the weekend. Big change for people um, to, to get used to. Um, but on, I suppose we're looking more towards about where, where we are going now and reflecting back on, on, on what's been done and how we handled um, this crisis in our country. Sinn Féin wants a public inquiry. Can you lay out exactly what you want to see examined, David Colnan? Yes, and, and first of all, I think what we need to do is to agree politically what the foundations of a public inquiry uh, are and would be, and also what uh, the form of that inquiry would take. So I don't want to see a public inquiry that's long and drawn out. I don't want to see one that would cost tens of millions or hundreds of millions of euro. And I don't want a public inquiry, by the way, that's a blame game or looking to apportion blame. I genu genuinely want to see a public inquiry that looks at uh, all of the lessons that we know need to be learned arising from the pandemic, but also actions that need to be taken. And, you know, in many ways, this is one of those moments of change. And we want to make sure that the changes in healthcare, the changes in workers' rights, like statutory sick pay scheme, uh, the legislation that would underpin remote working, uh, making sure that all of the issues in, in the health system are dealt with, but also crucially looking back at, yes, mistakes were made by government at times in relation to mixed messaging. We know that and bad planning and obviously all of that has to be part of it. But crucially, I think we need to ensure that there is an examination of what hap happened in nursing homes, uh, especially in the earlier stages of the pandemic. And I think we have to find a place for families as well, bereaved families. Thanks. It was a really difficult time. So I don't think it should be about apportioning blame. I think, yes, we need to look back and we need to learn lessons, but it's more also about looking to the future and making the changes right. that we need uh, to see. Just, just on that, the public inquiry, why is it that we're hearing that government leaders have decided not to have a commission of inquiry or an Oireachtas committee to look at our response to the pandemic, Neil? Well, there isn't a final decision. If you look at the programme for government, there is a commitment for a full review. We are quite early at the stage. Hopefully we're passed through the emergency stage. But personally, I agree with David. I think we should have a full and fulsome review of everything and make sure we can take genuine learnings out of it. Look at the international comparisons that are relevant, where we did well, where we can improve. One of the great lessons for me from this pandemic is a country comparable to us. Finland have a standing crisis response unit actually set up to deal with a possible Russian invasion. But perhaps that is something that we in this state should have to deal with these very major incidences yeah. that are rare. And I think if we do it in a thorough way, look at the actions of government, of opposition, of the state actors, 
bear them in the hole. I think it could be something worthwhile. And I think the government will support something that is reasonable and fair to all actors. Because, uh, you know, what we have been hearing over the weekend, and I do acknowledge that it is early days and, and that we're, we are, we're looking to the future now, um, but that, you know, Stephen Donnelly saying he'd seek government approval for a report into the handling of the pandemic by the health service. Um, that would seem quite narrow if you're talking about all those other things, um, bigger picture on, you know, everything from school closures, um, right through to ventilation, antigen tests and everything else. Well, it has to be relevant. And I think, again, I refer to the programme for government, which was agreed during the first stage of this pandemic, is committed to a full review. And the Taoiseach himself, on a radio interview at the end of last week, when we were discussing coming out, has made it clear that something appropriate... Very quickly, Claire, I would hope that we don't need a review to make obvious changes which are necessary. So we know that inequality in the healthcare system, very long waiting lists, 900,000 people waiting for treatment is unacceptable. Equally, we know that remote learning is something that is now with us. It's permanent. We need a legal framework to underpin it. We need to deliver a living wage for all of those low paid workers that kept okay. uh, shops open in very difficult circumstances. Uh, and also we need a statutory sick pay scheme. So we don't need reviews to deliver all of those uh, areas uh, where change is needed. But I think a public inquiry is needed to establish the facts. Right. And that's the most important thing, that okay. we establish exactly what happened and it's evidence based. Do you think, um, despite what Neil is saying, do you think the political appetite is there in government for a, a full-scale public inquiry, a commission of inquiry into how we handle this pandemic, Christina? I think there's going to have to be some sort of compromise um, here because I think the expert panel that was floated over the weekend uh, into looking back and evaluating and reviewing, I don't think that's going to cut it for perhaps some political parties like Sinn Féin and, and, and some other opposition members. I, I, you know, the Taoiseach last year had said, um, I thought it was interesting. He moved away from the language of inquiry and it was more review and evaluation based. So basically, you know, nobody's going to end up on the hook for any bad mistakes that Is were that made. Is that it? They're scared of I think I a lot of at people, the end of it all, among the list of recommendations. It's going to be very be different than the banking inquiry where we were, you know, a, a, there was a long time period where people had moved on. At the moment, if you're evaluating things that went wrong within the health service and other aspects of government, those people are still probably in those positions and in those jobs, which does make it very difficult. The other problem I would see perhaps with a committee is there can often be a bit of showboating from politicians when they get the, the spotlight put on them on you know particularly high profile um, issues. But again, the nursing homes one I think is the one that has to be top of the agenda there in terms of mistakes that were made. But then on the flip side, there were some positives. Dara Bryan from um, Housing has said the way we dealt with the homelessness issue when, when push came to shove, you know, uh, bureaucracy and red tape was cut so that things could actually get moving, things that they said could never be done. Yeah, um, in terms of how we plan for other things in this country. Um, somebody's tweeted in, a human rights-based public inquiry must have happened for nursing homes. We can't learn the lessons if we don't examine all the facts. Would you agree with that, Neil? Well, I think I wouldn't want to make it one by one specific issue, as David said, we need to look at all the it issues. It certainly is and a big most... focus on how we handled it at the very start, in the initial wave of this virus. Absolutely. What happened in our nursing homes and the death toll as a result of this pandemic also. Absolutely. Over 6,000 people lost through this pandemic. But then you look at the international comparison, we haven't had the excess mortality rates that a lot of countries have. We bear that in mind. And it has to be overall in total. There's other countries had very worrying things with care homes and nursing homes. Let's, of course, learn from mistakes, prepare unfortunately to possibly another event like this in the future because there's no point as Christina said having something just to poke blame we have to take something out of it and we really it is important to 
stress that we're only a couple of days after declaring this emergency over. COVID hasn't gone. It's still with us. There's still quite a number of people in ICU. There's still quite a number of people in hospital. There are still an element of restrictions. I think we all have an appetite to see a proper review or a proper inquiry if that's required, but we need to do it in a, ma in a manner that's actually and productive. I would hope that the government... to do this review? I mean, there's so many stakeholders at play with, with, the, with the entire um, COVID response. I mean, there's, there's all the politicians, the government, there's, there's, the, there's the swathe of, of public health officials who made huge calls in this country. I would hope that the government would listen to the opposition and engage with the opposition. And I think if we can get political agreement on how we would do this, who would do it, what time it would uh, take, because genuinely, I don't believe there is any appetite, certainly from within Sinn Féin, for a very long, drawn out, costly process. But it has to be human rights based. It has to put families, for example, of bereaved people first. And also, while I would say there was obviously mistakes made by government and government departments in relation to bad planning, indecision, mixed messaging, there was also some extraordinary efforts from people people in our health services, uh, people who stepped up to the plate in relation to testing and tracing, and even in terms of the e-health and IT systems, we didn't have them. We had to build them from scratch. There was extraordinary work done by so many people. So we have to, as Christine said, also look at the, the positives and the huge yeah. efforts and sacrifices that you were would, made It makes by me people. think when you're saying that, um, David Conan, Sinn Féin stands throughout this in, in kind of backing Neffet and essentially backing government decisions all the way is something that, that would mean, you know, how would political heads role here or what way would it work out because there was consensus really wasn't there sort of across the board for the last two years yeah, it was on all the decisions straight, that were made. Straight out of a general election and all political parties were singing off the same hymn sheet which is you know quite a rarity I think um, in Irish politics but now I think as we move away from that we're definitely going to see a lot more tensions rise be it between Sinn Féin and the government parties but also I think within government within, within Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and and the Greens, I, I, I don't think it's going to be uh, an easy ride for the for the rest of the... Of but I think in, in, in the midst of a global pandemic, when you're dealing with what we were dealing with, of course there's going to be a degree of political consensus. And of yeah. course, when it comes to public health, we have to support it. And it was a very difficult job, for I think, for all parties in opposition, because we have a responsibility to hold the government to account. And I think on occasions when, as I pointed out, when there was the mixed messages, bad communication, that yes, had to be, that had to be called hear. out we heard as well. And I think that was that. appropriate for us to do it. But I think that okay. consensus was, was a good thing for, for the country to get us through the pandemic. All right, and we'll have to see what happens with an inquiry looking back while at the same time acknowledging that uh, it isn't quite over yet. Well, my thanks to the panel after the break. Pete Lunn from the ESRI will be here as we begin to move on from the pandemic. Stay with us. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Now, the speedy lifting of restrictions last week caught some by surprise. And for many, the pace of change may come as a shock to people reticent about socialising. Well, here to discuss this now is Sunday independent journalist Jonah Lynch, psychotherapist and author Stella O'Malley and ESRI behavioural economist Pete Lunn. Um, you're all very welcome along to the programme. Pete, to come to you first, um, the research from the ESRI has shown what many would kind of agree with, perhaps, that this removal of all the restrictions has come as quite of a shock or will come as quite of a shock to, to quite a few people. Yes, I mean, you said there in your intro that it caught some by surprise. It caught almost everyone by surprise. So in the week leading up to the announcement last week, what we know is that only 12% of the population thought that restrictions would be eased in February, let alone in January. So, you know, 88% of the population thought there'd be no easing by, February, by the end of February. And yet here we are. So it came as a huge shock. Um, and I think that has real implications. I think it's still sinking in with people and I think it's caused a degree of anxiety. And it's really important to understand what the, the cause of the shock is, I think, because I've read far too much commentary that suggests somehow the government or the chief medical officer kind of changed their opinion or their attitude or their politics in some way. What this was, was we learnt something. The science and the numbers changed. And it really worked in our favour, and it worked remarkably strongly in our favour in terms of that feed through to hospitalisations and into serious disease. And when the science changes, everything changes. But that happened incredibly quickly because of the time we were going through and the wave that we were going through. So that means everybody's views changed because the world changed for us. And yes, it's come as a shock, I think, to the politicians. I think it's come as a shock to the members of NEFIT. I think it's come as a shock to everyone. Um, if it's come as such a shock, do you think people um, were... Uh, like, I'm sure there were a lot of people who were out this weekend and enjoying themselves and just feeling that weight off their shoulders. Um, but... Were there others who maybe want to take it slowly, take it more slowly, as in we were hearing about this staggered approach to reopening when that didn't happen? Maybe people are staggering it for themselves. Well, I think that the, the narrative has always been that we're, that we're chomping at the bit to get back out there and that we really want to get back to normal life. I think there's a huge amount of people, I'm a bit like this myself, where they got used to being at home and they got used to not having to uh, invent excuses to cry off from social things that they never wanted to go to in the first place. And now they've become kind of a little bit institutionalized in their own living rooms. And that's sad. It is it? a little bit it sad, is. you know, but, you know, I think it's, it's not as simple. You can sort of, you know, open the door of the cage, but it doesn't mean the canary is going to necessarily fly out because it's been in the cage for so long. And we've had so many you know, um, promises where, you know, if, uh, about Christmas, about summers, about the next Christmas. And a lot of them haven't come to pass. And I think people are just uh, now they've they've yeah, they, they, they're so, so used to being at home that they, they just uh, will have to relearn how to be social. Are we a bit weary as a nation, do you think, Stella? Many false dawns, many, you know, we yeah. think this is over, we can go out, you can enjoy yourselves, and then it's all pulled back, curfews are in place, restrictions, we're worried about whether kids can go back to school, all of these things, how much do they kind of bear down on people when finally you're given the green light to do what you want? Uh, yeah, I don't think many people really trust it is a green light. It's like we're saying, yeah, yeah, apparently the restrictions have been relifted. I don't think a lot of people trust it because there's been so many false dawns, especially with this. It's the amount of times people thought, oh, that's the worst over and it wasn't the worst over. I actually think this is great. I think it's really good. I think our mental health has been absolutely 
really, really badly impacted in the last couple of years. And I think we'll be talking about it for many years to come. And I've just, every email I get is, and then COVID happened, and then COVID happened, and we really slumped. It's just so common that it's become just almost like a mantra I'm hearing. So I'm delighted. And I think we are like Pavlov's dogs. We're, we've been conditioned to be fearful. We've been conditioned to be wary and to stay back and not to go out and to be kind of nearly uh, kind of got used to being insular and not very joyful. And now I think we've got, this is, it's good news. Like you said, the, the, the news is good. We've been very strict. We really were, everything we've done in Ireland seems to have been really, really poured over in a very heavily kind of academic way. And now they're saying, yeah, you're out, it's okay. Do you expect, Pete, the next round of research to show that we're all embracing <coughs> this? Uh, I don't want to say new normal because we want it to be normal, don't we? Um, but would you expect that or do you think there will be that, that sentiment, that caution and reticence that we have, we have arguably seen throughout that there have been a vocal few who've been very um, unhappy with the restrictions that have been put in place, but there have been many, as your research has shown, who have been happy with the moves that have been made by, by government over the past two years. Yeah, so you're asking a scientist to predict something that I'm going to find out in my data tomorrow and in about three days' time when I get new data in, and it pains me to, to make that prediction. I don't really want to. I just want to get the data and look at it, because that's what I'm like. But if you really, really force me to make that prediction, I do think we'll see some anxiety. So I think, you know, throughout, there's been a minority who really did want to get back out as quickly as possible and perceived always less risk than everybody else. And about maybe sort of 15% of the population who just weren't on board with the public health response. And then you've got this huge huge majority who were, and of them, the majority actually throughout the pandemic on balance wanted an even more cautious approach than our government gave us, which by international standards was quite cautious. And I should point out, I'm not criticizing that because that's one of the reasons we have a lower death rate than almost everyone else in Europe, because we took a more cautious public health approach and we decided that was the right thing to do. So yeah, I think you will see because of that, of that group who are very cautious, you will see quite a degree of anxiety. And part of the reason for that is we need a new narrative now, which we don't have. We've suddenly been told, look, we have freedom, but we haven't been told collectively, what is it we're now trying to achieve? How much do I adjust my risk dial? What do I allow myself to do and what do I still hold Does back? Does that mean on? we need hand-holding again? No, I don't think so, no. One of the criticisms. I, I, no, but, I, I don't know, think, I wouldn't call it hand-holding because it comes with a rather negative connotation. I think we need a narrative about what direction we're heading in. What is the equilibrium with this disease that we're trying to achieve? Why is it that there, is, there are some guidance and restrictions that are still in place, others that have been lifted? What's the logic there that gets us to a destination we're trying to get to that we can all buy into? It's like we need to discover a collective story again of where we're going. And I think at the moment, people are just a bit adrift and they don't know exactly how much to move the dial and exactly what to do and what not to do. And what they'll almost certainly do is they'll just take a pace backwards and pause and watch what everyone else does, because that's what human beings do. Yeah. And some people will get out there and we'll watch them dip their toe in the water and then we'll say, oh, do we want to do that as well? And, and if we hear good stories about it, we be, might. To be positive as well, to not, I mean, we all feel like we've kind of been to war, but there are thing, things that we can take out of the pandemic that, that are probably good. It's definitely brought a big focus on inequality in Irish life. And, and I think that's going to be a big theme in the election and, and, and how, how housing played into that. Uh, I think it's also made us a little bit less consumerist. You know, I mean, there's apparently more savings. People have more savings now than they ever had. People have realized they don't need uh, a lot of the crap that they were buying all along. Um, 
and the, that, that all of that sort of stuff was bad for the well, environment for anyway. for hearing anything, it's like people want to, when they do have, have the money, and I think, I think that's what we'll probably see is the divisions in society, the haves and the have-nots, that there's a lot of people who want to spend big and maybe celebrate this year with going on, on, on holidays abroad and, and the likes of that, making up for lost time. I, I think they, I think they will. But they, when they looked in England anyway, they said people still want to save and they want to build on what they've done. It's all very dry and boring. But, but apparently, I, I think it's, I think it's a good thing because I think it's, it, it just shows that, like, I, I know I, I saw it myself during the pandemic. You wonder what did you spend all your money on before, you know? And uh, I don't know. It just, it's just sort of out, hemorrhages out of ourselves. your account. Yeah, maybe, but, but also a lot of things we kind of didn't need as much as that. Yeah. Um, Stella, just on what you were saying there about being conditioned not to hug and not to embrace each other. Um, when do you think we're going to do that? Because I've noticed, you know, I don't know when we got the all clear to do all of that, but I think there is still a big um, reticence among people to kind of hug and embrace and maybe apart from close family. But there is that, there is that kind of, you know, step back still that, that'll take probably a while uh, yeah. to change. So how, that, how, do you, how do you go about doing that? I think it would be helpful if there was a kind of, you know, some sort of kind of tick Yes, you can hug people. Yes, you can shake hands. Do, do you, you know think I mean? that charter is required? Pete mentioned it there about, you know, with the way forward. It would be a bit a... of fun and it okay. would be kind of, it would, it would ease worry because worry is where we're, we're, we're so, we've been two years worrying intensely and I think it would ease people and it would let people kind of almost kind of unclench their jaws and kind of go, okay, we're allowed, if you follow me. It's like we're so used to not being allowed, everybody just holding off. Mm. We're not naturally going to shake each other's hands. We're not naturally going to hug. We've been so long kind of conditioning ourselves not to. And I think, yeah, I think it would be, it doesn't have to be a, a kind of a nanny's charter. Everybody go <laughs> was, hug each other. That was another thing that was great, went out, hugging and kissing. I mean, we, we turn into like, the French, like kisses on both cheeks and things like that. It was great. Well, look, the I don't know. Pandemic got rid of it all. <laughs> no, well, listen, I wasn't out at the weekend. I'm sure. I'm sure there was lots of that happening, um, right around, you know, in, in, in pubs and clubs and <laughs> elsewhere. That uh, maybe we're sitting here unsure about it, but plenty of others are not. In fairness, I think a lot of people. I think the people, you know, who are in their twenties, I'd say they had a great time, and I hope they had a great time, and I hope they have a great time next week and a great time the week after. They have had it hard. Like it's developed developmentally appropriate when you're in your 20s to be meeting loads of new people and to be kind of constantly changing your social life and going different places, not having things booked and table service and stay with the four people you stuck with at the beginning of the night. That's not what they should be doing. So I really think that got swiped off them. Mm. And I hope they have. I really do hope and that they uh, enjoyed uh, themselves. Our data totally matched that. I mean, the mental health hit was far and away biggest among young adults. And I it was saw much that. bigger than it was, yeah. I among, saw that. Among older adults, it was yeah. much larger, yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, like you think though that Omicron, even though it's less severe, in your view, Pete, people will take their time as they, they simply still have that anxiety and don't want the virus in their home. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who don't want it in the home. I think that's particularly true of families who might have children where it's enormously disruptive if the, if the virus comes into your home, even if you know, the threat of serious disease, disease has diminished to a very considerable degree. I think that's true of a lot of people. We also know what people did on the previous occasions when restrictions were lifted when actually the picture wasn't maybe as rosy in terms of how severe the virus could be as it is now. Um, but people took a long time to come back out. I mean, even from the very first...
first lockdown, I mean, we were seeing behavioural change lasting eight or ten weeks before people really started, a lot of people really started coming back out again. So I would expect exactly the same cautious approach this time. Uh, I don't see any reason to see, to see anything different there. Um, I do think new conventions will establish themselves quite quickly, though. I mean, you know, the whole thing where we all started, you know, doing this kind of oh, elbow bumping stuff. I mean, that, can we that, stop that, that, that now? Please, yeah. right now, we've got However much we dislike it, what was amazing about that was it, it spread through society in less than a week. I mean, because yeah. everyone just goes, oh, that's what we have to do now, is it? And I think the same thing will happen, you, I, can I happen we... in reverse, but you do yeah. need, uh, you know, the conversation. You need the kind of guidance. It yeah. needs to be a collective thing where we all kind there's, of get used to it. There's bigger picture again. things on, on, you know, what, 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 we've, what we've learned and what we might do now. And, and one of the big things is about the workplace and remote yeah. working and the future of work in this country. Yeah. Because it's all open now and up for grabs, isn't it? Yeah, I think in the next few years, you're going to see people really just demand better conditions from their employers. I think uh, working from home is, is, is going to be is here to stay. Um, but uh, the way that happens kind of needs to, I mean, I've worked, needs to be regulated. I've worked from home for a long time. And people always kind of just presume that you're, uh, you know, that it's easier and that you're getting up late and you can do it whenever you want and they don't realize that you kind of live at work when you live uh, at work when you when you work at home and i think you're you know things like uh, varadkar's right to disconnect uh, are sort of murmurs at addressing that um but i i think that yeah it's definitely going to change the way the way we work yeah um, another thing for people and you know, when, when we're talking about working from home and being in the home, being in the home is, is quite an isolating thing, Stella, as well. If people feel that they can't, or for some reason, say in a workplace, they decide, actually, we've got rid of our physical office building and now you will be working from home as much as you can. It can be very difficult and isolating for people. It has been that way for the last couple of years. Yeah, it very much depends on the person. Some people find it a joy and some people find it a strain. But mm. definitely the studies show that you need frequent interaction with other people. The majority of people, most people need it. And it's the frequency. It's not as if you can just do two weeks and then not see somebody for 50 weeks, if you follow me. You, you need a kind of regular interaction of going down to the shop and seeing somebody and buying something and smiling at somebody. That kind of frequency matters to our kind of happiness levels. And it was taken from us that we could only just see our bubble, you know what I mean, the people, and that was really bad for us. And the kind of, like you say, you know what I mean, living at home, working at home, slouching around in horrible pajamas that you, you haven't changed for for too long and things like that that caused a strain but on the other hand i do think for women an awful lot of women i really do especially women i shouldn't just say women um who are managing the kind of work-life balance with the kids and home and being able to kind of be at home for when the kids come back and then be being able flexible enough to being able, and obviously lots of fathers, I'm no doubt they're texting in right now, but I'm sure they were, they were just as much under strain as well with that. Mm. But I think it's, it's a real opening kind of, okay, you can be available between two and four, and then you can go back to work. That, if it gets worked properly, will really kind of renegotiate our way of working. And I think it would be very good and may, Or make people consider, you know, what, what is their work life about and, and really look at the work life balance and what's important to them now. And um, Pete, just on, on behavior, say, so all the restrictions are lifted, we are dipping our toe back in, some running straight, straight in, others taking a little bit of time. If, for example, things change again and we look at, you know, the pandemic not being over, another variant on the horizon, can people switch back now at this point? Has it gone on for too long that it's difficult to make people um, every time, stick to new rules? 
I got asked that question every time we had to switch back before, and do you know what? We switched back. I mean, one of the things that's amazing, actually, about what's happened in the last couple of months, we actually recorded the largest degree of behavior change in the last couple of months that we'd seen since we started recording it. I mean, the public response to Omicron was huge. We saw a reduction in close contacts of 40% between November and January, despite the fact that Christmas was in the middle. So we're actually measuring what people do, how often they leave the homes, how many people they meet, how much time they spend in each other's company. There was a really strong behavioural response. So people have talked... I mean, I first got asked the question about are people too tired for this, are they too fatigued, I think in April 2020. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we've learned to cope with it and to deal with it. And to some extent, you know, it's become part of our culture in a way. We're now worrying about going back. So, yeah, I don't think if we get asked to go back to restrictions, but there will be some people who hate it. I will certainly be one of them. But I don't think we'll have a problem doing it if we have to, because I think people understand the logic. I mean, when it gets out of control, as a collective, we have to do something about it, because we'll have to in the end anyway. And I think people understand that. Well, let's um, hope we don't have to. But um, it's good that we pull together, at least. Um, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Donald, Stella and to Pete. Uh, lots more coming up after this break, including how you could save on your energy bills this year. So stay with us. Welcome back. Now, with energy costs continuing to rise, financial planning expert Paul Merriman is here to tell us how we can make some savings this year. Hard to believe we can actually make savings this year. Is it possible because of the huge price rises we're seeing right across the board? Yeah, Paul. I think when you're looking at savings, you're really trying to combat the price increases and try and beat the energy providers here. Uh, so you're dead right. You're going to actually make the savings, but you're hopefully going to save money uh, but not going along with the increases. And uh, this is really down to the consumer to make sure say this nearly every time, you switch provider and make sure that you're beating the increases where you can. And it is possible. Now, if there are 20% increases, say, and probably more than that yes. right across the board, how can you avoid them to moving to a different provider? Surely they've gone up across all providers. There are. So in fairness, across all the providers, some providers haven't gone up as much as others, though. So for argument's sake, last year, when one of the increases, one went up by 6%, one was up by 9.5% in one day. So you want to make sure that when you're switching, you do a full comparison. The big tip here is when you go on to any switcher sites like switcher.ie or bonkers, whatever you're going to use, when you go on to those sites that you print off your energy and your electricity, so your, your energy and your gas bill and have them as a jewel and go on to the site with all your information, so what your last bill was, what your usage is, and that will really calculate to the kind of, literally to the, to the cent, how much you can potentially save. Uh, there's also some cashback offers that are available with these guys as well, but remember to do it every year. Because what people do is they do it once and then they forget to switch next year and their tariff goes up again. And you might be paying a higher tariff. Or you go to an open off. plan, isn't that yes, right? Because exactly. you're, not, you're not tied into yeah, a plan. Exactly. So you're trying to tie in for a little bit of time, maybe a year, and then, but just make sure you, you kind of put it in your phone, you put it in a calendar somewhere to remind yourself to switch again. Companies won't always remind you of that. <laughs> no, no, they won't remind you at all. Uh, and that's what it's really down to the consumer to make sure that they're looking after their own money and making sure they're getting the best bang for their buck and not paying out energy providers when you don't have to. How much can you save? 
Well, on average, it's about 550 to maybe 600 euro. That's based on a three-bed semi-D. Uh, so it depends on, obviously, your usage as well. But usage is a big thing. I feel like I'm going back to my dad in the 80s screaming as I turn the lights off and turn the plug, take the plugs out. But it really does make a difference if you do turn off things in the house. You don't need them on standby. So it does come down to your no own behaviour. Yeah, exactly. So it does come down to your own behaviour, as well as making sure like you could get one of the new thermostats, the smart thermostats in to make sure that your actual thermostat and the clock in your, your heating system, electricity system is actually working, your heating system is actually working in your best interests. Okay, well that work in, in no matter what, what your home is like, maybe yes. a new home or a lot of new homes would have those built-in they thermostats. Will, yeah, they, yeah. Will, they will have. But they're very easy, yeah, they're easy to install, they're easy to get as well. Uh, you can get them online, so Hive will probably be the biggest one out there from Google, etc. So there's, lo there's loads of different products on the marketplace, uh, but get What's them in. What's the key thing about them, apart from telling you your room is at, well, say, 21 degrees? Great question. You need to know? The key thing is a lot of people, let's say, for example, you're coming home at 5 o'clock and you want to set your heating on at 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock, and then you're late in work or you get distracted and you don't get home till, you know, half six. Well, you're just heating the house between five and six for no reason whatsoever. So it allows you to change the setting while you're not in the house through your phone, your device. So it makes it smarter that you're obviously going to be hopefully working smarter with your energy uh, and therefore reducing your bills. Now, they claim they can, they can save you up to 20%. You know, so if energy costs are going up 25, 28%, and thermostat's going to save you 20 and by switching provider as well, you're up and no saving again. And they're so reasonable enough to, to, to buy. They're very to reasonable install. to buy and they're really easy to install as well. And uh, they do come with some maintenance fees uh, on an annual basis. So always check what you're going to be paying again. Uh, the thermostat might have to, uh, to give you online access to make sure you can change the settings. It might be, you know, one might be 18 euro a year, it could be 50 quid a year. So you want to make sure you check the small print and what you're actually going to be paying for oh, these for things For the app well. and how you yeah. use it. Um, also smart metering this is something ESB are rolling out yep. right across the country that's to replace the existing meters yep. which just gives the estimated read yeah, on a bill. It gives the so estimated they don't actually know how much yeah. you're using they're just guessing based on what you what you may yeah, use. just on the so average you can't Andrews, save average household on, on the smart meters can you, you? can well, well, well the smart meters come here, it's going to be more accurate to your bills you're not getting any surprises again so if somebody comes out to read your meter or they ask you your energy provider might ask you to take a meter reading and then when you take it you could see a big spike if you've had a particular cold winter etc and people mightn't be prepared uh, and that comes a good a good one to discuss as well when you're looking at consumers when they can put in these kind of uh, prepaid meters as well unfortunately there's a bit of stigma around people getting those in but if you can get a prepaid meter in it's going to help you financially uh, to manage your bills on a monthly basis. They cost that is more in the way. long term though, the, the prepay. They meters. can do, consumers will say that, but again, it's about money management that makes sure there's a lot of people out there that are in debt with their energy providers at the moment. That's why the government has brought in that emergency legislation where everyone's going to receive 100 euro towards their electricity bill this year. Uh, but that's because there's so many people in financial difficulty when it comes to their bills. You know. Personally, oh. I don't think everybody should be getting, I think it should be people that are arrears, but that's another discussion. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, I suppose the government will argue in trying to pick out who you're going to give it to, um, that, that'll cost money I in itself. I think the energy providers will probably know who's in arrears though and who hasn't paid, you know, so I think it would might be easier. And an argument then that the people who are in arrears who need, really need it might be able to get um, a little bit more. Yeah, a little bit more as well, yeah. That's but, that probably but overall, the best because we're looking as well at sustainability and everything that we can do to make things sort of good for the planet as well as good for our homes, there are there are cost-saving measures, but you have to pay kind of up front yeah. in order to reap the benefits, yeah. don't you? Yeah, I mean, even look, look at the smart, the, the smart thermos that we discussed, you still have to pay if you hundred euro in some cases they get that in and get it installed and that's probably going to turn people off but smart thermostats are actually developed for more of that carbon footprint more than saving money but they just kind of come a bit of both 
But in today's world, they're really there for saving money because energy costs have gone up so much in the last kind of 12 to 18 months. Uh, but originally, they were there to make sure you could run your house smartly and not be wasting heat and thus increasing your uh, carbon footprint. So there, yeah. there's a lot you can do, but you're right. If you look at the likes of the solar panels and all these grants are available, you still have to put in a good bit of money yourself for it, so a lot of people don't have. Uh, the big question people want to know is, uh, we, we keep talking about bills going up, will they come down? No. <laughs> I can't see them coming down at all. I mean, we look at inflation and most of these energy providers, I mean, trying to get fossil fuels now is just so expensive for them, but also, they didn't increase in 2020 because of COVID-19 uh, and you're getting a kind of knock-on effect into 2021, 2022. I just can't see them coming down for the foreseeable future. They're going to go up and up without governments getting involved and putting you know, caps on them. But that, that's not really a place where any government wants to go. But it's not just happening in Ireland. This is happening right throughout Europe. Uh, I mean, even across in the UK, they're having a nightmare with this. Uh, so it, it's happening everywhere. And I can't see them coming down. And this is why... A lot of consumers out there don't realise that inflation's going up. Inflation last year averaged 5.5%. It's been the biggest since 2001. You know, that's really eroding your money. If you have savings or you have cash in there, like it's, it's literally eroding the front of you. If you look, we discussed last week, health insurance going up. Now we're talking about energy prices going up, house prices going up. It's getting expensive <laughs> and it's not going to change. I thought we might finish up on a positive note, but no. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, though, Paul. Thanks thank for you. all the advice there. Um, our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning, but from all the late team here, good night. Do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.